It's Tuesday, November 13th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Special Ops, Mike Olson, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Good to see you guys. Yo, we got a lot going on today. We've got we've got Home Depot. We've got a big story in oil. We've got a lot going on at Microsoft. But let's start with Home Depot. Third quarter earnings came in higher than expected. The company ah. also raised ah. guidance. Atlanta's own Home Depot. I turn to Atlanta's own Joe Mager. What's uh, what's going on here? It's a killer quarter. I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, but Home Depot has spent the past five, six years getting back to basics in terms of improving their in-store merchandising, connecting with customers, simplifying the overall business, and it's treated them very well. Uh, gross margins continue to expand, and even if the housing recovery wasn't starting to unfold, they would still be doing better right now. And you're combining you know, the ongoing improvements in logistics, merchandising that they've done with a housing recovery, and the numbers look great, and I think they're going to keep getting better. To what extent, if any, did Hurricane Sandy factor into this quarter for Home Depot? Not much. Not no. much. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the cuts on different price points, one thing they mentioned on the conference call was that sales above $900, which is kind of the contract, space. Yep. Uh, we're up 4%. So that's definitely a nice sign and trending in the right direction. Right. And Hurricane Sandy, that that was a couple weeks ago. 9.30 quarter on. There's just that saying. too. Just saying. There is that. Yeah. Um, when you look at uh, at stocks associated with the housing market, is this, is this a good sign? Like for uh, the obvious company I'm thinking of is Lowe's here. I mean, is this automatically a, a, a good sign for Lowe's that a company like Home Depot is going to have a quarter like this? I think that they're, they're, they're really – it's two different houses in that Home Depot was way behind Lowe's in terms of the quality of its merchandising, the efficiency of its supply chain, and the extent to which they were able to draw customers on account of that. And so Home Depot right now probably has the relative advantage if they're able to continue what improvements they've made in merchandising. I think, you know, when you look at this quarter writ large, it's not so much about what Home Depot um, did or the improvements in the housing market so much as it was them controlling the factors they could. They've continued to invest in their merchandising supply chain and taking advantage of the world-class scale that they have. When you look at the best retailers, kind of the TJ Maxx's of the world, the Nordstrom's, the Walmart's, they've all leveraged what scale they have into a supply chain into supply chain efficiencies. And that's what, you went, when you were looking at the Nardelli days of Home Depot, they didn't necessarily have that going for them. That guy got booed out of Atlanta. <laughs> People hated that guy. Yeah, and then he went to what, like, Ford? Chrysler? Chrysler. He went to Chrysler and drove that into a ditch. <laughs> but he got cre- paid a lot. I was going to say, did. give him credit. But Bob Mardelli, if nothing else, is good at uh, compensation packages, uh, certainly when it comes to exiting the company. Joe, know what I, you're worth. Yeah, exactly. Joe, <laughs> I know Home Depot is a recommendation of your service. Yeah. Shares up a little bit today and trading at a 12-year high. What do you think of the valuation right now? Well, it's not low. It's around 22 times this year's earnings, which is definitely on the higher side, but we're not cutting bait in IV. I think it's doing incredibly well, and I'm just going to keep riding this one through the housing recovery. But I, I wouldn't rush to buy shares either. The United States is on pace to become the world's biggest exporter of oil in the next decade. This is all according to a report from the International Energy Agency. Uh, Mike, it says by 2020, 
Number one. The U.S. is going to surpass Saudi Arabia in terms of net exports. What do you think of this? Uh, I think we're going to have big foam hands that say we're number one in oil Ooh. production. Um, <laughs> outside of that, um, I think this is just a funny story in terms of how perception of uh, – natural resource availability has pivoted. If you were to look five years ago, people would say that there is no more oil. And now we're apparently awash in the stuff. And I think the reality is a bit more nuanced here. You have to acknowledge that most of the the incremental production the IEA foresees is from these shale-type resources. And we're very much in the early innings of this game. Certainly, they've produced a lot of oil, but the companies that are drilling these and the the i guess the projections that the IEA is basing this all this upon it's we don't really have a robust set of data this is only a few years in these wells are expected to produce for 20 or 30 years and so it could be somewhere right in between that being said if this does end up being everything they anticipate it could be we might end up hearing a phrase that we have not heard for a long time and that is an oil glut oversupply Joe, what do you think of this story? Oh, I think it's great news. I mean, just thinking policy-wise, obviously it puts the U.S. in a much better position where we're not having to, you know, kowtow to outside interest if we're producing a lot more of our own supply. And that's a big deal. And I think it's tough to project exactly what that means over the long haul, but it definitely gives us a little more, you know, bargaining table, a little more power at the bargaining table, but particularly in the Middle East. Right. One other thing to note in terms of power at the bargaining table and the extent to which this tilts the scales uh, from a policy standpoint is that the U.S. is not the only country that has legion resources or reportedly legion resources in shale oil. Many other countries have these resources. They just do not have the technological wherewithal. And so you could be looking at a circumstance where 20 years from now, if Europe decides to allow fracking or Russia gets its act together... The playing field or the projections regarding the playing field might be a lot more balanced. It's worth noting uh, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Royal Dutch Shell all up slightly this morning. I don't know if that's tied to this report or not, but but this is a story that, for me anyway, I, and I don't own any energy stocks whatsoever, but my thinking has really been turned around in the last year or so because a couple of years ago, I to the extent that I was looking at energy companies to invest in, I was looking much more in the alternative energy space because it seemed like... A good place to waste your money. Exactly. Because <laughs> I wanted to light some money on fire. Um, but it seemed like, you know, that with the electric cars, more of them rolling off the lines, it seemed like, well, this is the future. And this is a story. This report now makes me think more than ever, you know what? Meet the new future, same as the present. It's... It's oil. It's all about oil. I don't see us moving away from oil in any meaningful way. Am I, am I wrong there? Well, interestingly, the IEA does actually project that oil as a percentage of total fossil fuel consumption will decline over that projected period. I do also think, though, to your point, we unfortunately, I mean, at least for future generations, are addicted to oil. And we have a vast global supply chain and infrastructure which is built around oil-based inputs. And it's very, very difficult to change that. And, you know, there's also a kind of chicken or egg thing where it's just like, how do you incentivize that change from an economic standpoint? It's very, very difficult. Right. You can get all fired up about your electric car, but there aren't electric car charging stations every mile and a half like there are gas stations. Yeah. Right. 
And to circle back to something Mike said, you know, anytime you hear people talking about peak something, that's usually where peak optimism is happening for a commodity. <laughs> so when everyone was talking about peak oil really hard four or five years ago, oil was definitely richly overpriced. And I think that's pretty well worked out. And, you know, ultimately, when a commodity price runs up and gets ahead of itself, people come in and want to produce more of it and you bring on oversupply and over the long term it ultimately nets out and there's a reason commodities historically have not done very well over the long term so if you take this report with a grain of salt and mike that's what it sounds like you're doing because Mm -hmm. to your point this is we don't have as much data as one would necessarily want to make these kind of projections but if you are an investor who is looking at this report and thinking you that it's if they're right you want to make some sort of investment based on this thesis, where would you look? Um, I do think that, well, first point is that even to the extent they are not right, much of this potential is not really priced into a lot of the oil-based stocks. Some companies you might look at, ones that are going to capitalize on this, I think in the mid-sized independent E&P sphere, I very much like Apache and Devon. They have a balanced resource portfolio. They're split between natural gas and oil. They have exposure to the oil shells and have proven very capable capital allocators. If you wanted to take a picture and shovels look at this, you want to look at the Schlumbergers and the Halliburtons of the world. They are the premier oil services companies, and they've proven remarkably astute at helping companies extract more oil and gas cheaper. Joe, you agree with that? I do. <laughs> we'll move on then. Um, let's move to Microsoft because today is the day that Call of Duty Black Ops 2, the, the video game, the latest in the Call of Duty franchises, was being released. And if you're a Microsoft shareholder like me, you probably woke up this morning thinking, oh, that's going to be the big story. It's going to be a great day for Microsoft. And it was until Steve Sanofsky announced he was leaving the company. He is the president of the Windows division at Microsoft. He has been with Microsoft for 23 years. He has been on the short list of people mentioned to succeed Steve Ballmer as CEO. And suffice to say that the shares of Microsoft are are down a couple of ticks today, Joe, instead of being up on that optimistic news that uh, the latest Call of Duty franchise would set yet another sales record. What do you make of this story, first and foremost? Because when I was watching CNBC this morning, at first blush, they were looking at the announcement and basically saying, it doesn't look like he was pushed. It doesn't look like a Vikram Pandit situation at Citigroup. Yeah, well, Sanofsky actually added value at Microsoft, unlike Pandit, <laughs> in fairness. I think this is definitely – obviously, you know, we're on the outside, so you kind of have to temper it a little bit. But Sanofsky was credited for really ramping Windows back up after the Vista debacle yep. and gets a lot of credit for bringing down a lot of Microsoft's famously tall bureaucracy walls at the company. He's also rumored to be very difficult to work with. But that said, I think his work has clearly been a success. So it was definitely a shock to hear the the guy who a lot of people thought would step into Balmer's shoes, who, you know, Balmer, a lot of people thought would basically walk away after Windows 8. So it's definitely a big question mark in terms of who takes over. But it also is troubling when, you know, they have this huge, huge rollout around Windows 8, and they really took some chances in terms of expanding, you know, the the Windows toolbox, I guess, and now making it tablet-friendly as well. And for him to walk away after the you know launch of that, maybe it's just that 
he wanted to see it through and he's been waiting to leave but if it was a huge home run he might have been a little more inclined to stick around so there's definitely no positive to read into it and there are some who are speculating that part of the reason Microsoft is down slightly today at least for some people has to do with if this guy's on the short list to succeed Steve Ballmer and he's now gone from the company that increases the likelihood that Steve Ballmer is CEO and right. he's had I, I guess it would be charitable to say a mixed record as CEO. Well, I think that that was kind of my takeaway from this, which is that if you look at Microsoft over passage of time, there have been some very large questions raised surrounding the quality of leadership, capital allocation, and the sort of internal culture they have engendered. This is the second big name software guy they have had depart. Ray Ozzie previously left. He was also kind of a luminary in the software space. Yeah. And when you look at Balmer's kind of um, his tenure as CEO, there have been a lot of questionable capital allocation decisions. There was the Aquantive acquisition, which was, what was that, like 9 or $10 billion, Joe? Yeah. It was a lot. And they wrote that down entirely. You had the search debacle. Um, Skype. 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 Um, and you could argue Skype might have some strategic value in terms of building an ecosystem around the, the Windows franchise. But, but we won't argue that. <laughs> right. It's still a lot of money. Um, and... So when when you look at all of that in, in the context of Microsoft, it, it doesn't leave you with a feel-good f- kind of vibe. I mean, this is still – I own the shares. It's still a dominant franchise. It's relatively cheap. But this doesn't, a little bit cheaper today. Right. It doesn't leave you excited. Um, and they, Microsoft is faced with some huge structural changes in terms of how the software landscape is going to shake out looking across the next next decade with the advent of cloud-based systems. Yeah, I'm really curious to see where Sanofsky pops up next because he said in his resignation letter memo to his peers at Microsoft that he does want to keep working in software and keep doing some more work. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there who I'm sure would treasure having someone of that caliber on staff, anyone from Apple to Google to, you know, a Samsung who wants to bring somebody in and design their own in-house operating system that can help them wean off reliance on someone else we're gonna see me yahoo next let's be honest wow <laughs> uh just the other day steve Ballmer said that sales of the surface tablet were modest um if if you want to play conspiracy theory if you look at the rollout of windows 8 if you look at modest surface tablet is that an argument for steve skinowski was was pushed out the door i don't think so i think the Surface isn't off to a great start because it's a product people just weren't excited about. I mean, Microsoft has kind of put themselves in this corner by delivering products and services that people really had no motivation to get fired up about for the last decade or so. And they put themselves kind of in that corner. And then with the price point of the Surface just too high, four ninety nine plus plus $100 for the keyboard. Every review I've read, you know, I know some people like it, but it's a little bit buggy. Uh, from what I've gathered, and not on par with the iPad or even some of the, you know, Android lines. Uh, that just in terms of smoothness of interface, right? I, and I think when you think about Windows on the bigger scheme of things, the way you really want to evaluate the success or lack thereof of a product launch. I mean, sales is the ultimate arbiter, but at the outset, it is going to be what the opinion leaders in the tech sphere say, and. To the best of my knowledge, the reviews have been almost uniformly glowing for Windows 8. And so if if that's the reason Sanofsky was pushed out, I think it's a mistake. 
As I mentioned at the outset, Call of Duty Black Ops 2 is being released today. I know that some of our colleagues, particularly in the tech department here at The Motley Fool, are very excited about this, and we're probably not going to see them for the rest of the day. There's going to be a very high incidence of seizures, actually, also, too. (laughs) Well, you know, I saw one report online today that said that, uh, you know, one survey of of Silicon Valley tech workers was essentially one in three are calling in sick so that they they can play this new game. Joe Mager, Mike Olson, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.